to the book of Isaiah this morning. The book of Isaiah. Now, I'm sure we've all heard the expression before to keep looking up. Keep looking up. Right? You've heard that before. Keep on looking up. You ever get tired of looking up? Just be honest. It's all right. Like if you were looking up at these buildings you see there on the screen, your neck might get tired after a while. Keep looking up. This week I was reading. I've been reading through the book of Isaiah in my devotions and I'm doing a little bit of a deep dive in Isaiah right now. And I came across a verse this week that you ever just have a verse just jump off the page at you? Well, that happened to me. It wasn't a page. It was my screen. I was reading on my phone, I'll confess. But I was reading my devotions on my phone, and this verse jumped off the screen at me. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. Now, I I needed to be reminded of what these birds sounded like. I never was big in science class. I can't can't look at a bird and tell you. I can look at a robin and tell you it's a robin. I can tell you what a cardinal is. But beyond that, it's getting a little sketchy, all right? I, I never was good at looking at flowers and birds and all those kind of things and telling you what they are. So I kind of had to do a little bit of a deep dive on YouTube, and I spent way too much time on YouTube looking what these birds sounded like. Like a crane, I chirp. Get annoying after a while, wouldn't it? Or maybe make you sleepy, I don't know. Maybe like a dove moan. You ever just kind of complain like this to God? God, I'm just moaning, chirping. My eyes are weary of looking up. Now, the reason for this is this is written by a man named Hezekiah. And I want to, to look with me at Hezek- or Isaiah chapter 38, and we're going to see why Hezekiah was chirping like a, like a crane bird and moaning like a dove, and why his eyes were weary of looking upward. Why was he tired? Why was he chirping and moaning? Well, it's Hezekiah. He's the king of Judah. At this point in Israel's history, Judah and the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, are divided. And if you remember, the northern kingdom had very few righteous kings. The kingdom of Judah had more righteous kings, and Hezekiah is one of those righteous kings of Judah. But in Isaiah chapter 38, we're told that in those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Now when you hear, thus says the Lord, you better pay attention. 
God's got a message for you. And here's the message. Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Now that wasn't the encouraging sermon that Hezekiah was hoping to hear on his sickbed. He was hoping, I'm sure, that Isaiah was going to come and say, God says you're going to recover, but instead, Isaiah comes and he says, you're going to die, Hezekiah. That's a, a bad problem to have. But really, now let me just remind you, Hezekiah right here, at this point in his life, is 39 years old. That's how old I am. Now, having just had a recent health scare, I can kind of understand, perhaps, a small part of how Hezekiah must have felt to a certain degree. Uh, we, we had a little scare that perhaps I had ALS. And if you know anything about ALS, you know that it's, it's pretty much a death sentence if you have it. Thank the Lord I don't, so praise the Lord for that. But there was, there was a couple weeks there, and I was, I was on some new medicine which really was messing with my head on, at the same time, literally, it was, for, it was migraine medicine, and it was messing with my head. And, and it was at that same time that I'm receiving this news that perhaps I have ALS, and you talk about messing with your mind. It, it messed with my mind, all right? But Hezekiah is 39 years old, and he finds out he's going to die. Now, that's, that's a big problem to have. But let me give you a little bit of a backstory because... That's a problem on top of a problem. Because what's going on at the same time is Hezekiah is surrounded, and the nation of Judah, Jerusalem, is surrounded by Assyria. And the nation of Judah has been brought to the point of collapse. Now, if you study the Assyrian Empire at all, you find out that they were brutal. Brutal. They had tactics that made ISIS look kind of weak. They were brutal in their tactics of warfare. And the nation of Judah is falling all around them. There's actually only two major cities left in Judah that hasn't yet collapsed to the Assyrian army. The city of Lachish and the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem is surrounded. Now there's some debate chronologically where Hezekiah's sickness comes in, because as we're going to see here in a minute, chapter 37 talks about what happens with the Assyrian Empire and Sennacherib, who was the leader of the Assyrians. But I'll save you all the debate and just tell you that I believe that Hezekiah's sickness actually comes before Sennacherib's defeat. Now there's some clues to that in chapter 38. And in fact, some believe it's actually three days prior to Sennacherib's defeat, that Hezekiah receives this news that he's going to die. Now that's a serious, some serious problems to have. It's one thing when a doctor tells you you're going to die, because doctors are wrong on occasion, right? Now I'm thankful for good doctors, but sometimes doctors are just flat out wrong. But when God says you're going to die, guess what? You're going to die. That's a serious problem to have. Now, why was Hezekiah sick? Why was he going to die? Had he sinned? Had he done something wrong? No. In fact, there's no evidence that Hezekiah had done anything wrong. 
We'll talk more about that in just a moment. In fact, Hezekiah had led a revival in Judah. He purified and repaired the temple. He'd gotten rid of the idols that were present in the temple. He had even gotten rid of the high places in Judah. He'd reformed the priesthood in his attempt to abolish idolatry from the kingdom. He'd even destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had put together, remember, as God had told Moses to, and lift up a serpent on, on the pole, and the people, if they would look at the serpent, they would live. You remember that happening? Well, now, many years later, long after Moses, that serpent on a pole is still around. But now the people are worshiping that serpent on a pole. And so Hezekiah destroys it because the people have become guilty of idolatry. So here's, here's a man who is doing his best to serve God, to please God. He's brought back the worship of God to the temple in Jerusalem. If you know anything about the history of Israel at this point, they went through a period of time to where everybody was setting up high places, not only often to worship false gods like Baal, but they were also setting up high places to worship Yahweh. But God had commanded that he would be worshipped out of in Jerusalem, in the temple. But many people were kind of setting up their own little churches here and there, all right? Their own little places to worship God. And Hezekiah has destroyed those things. Many of the kings in Israel failed to do that. But Hezekiah had done that. He defeated the Philistines. He'd resumed the Passover pilgrimage. He had even invited those in the northern kingdom. Remember, in the northern kingdom, they worshipped in Samaria. But Hezekiah had sent out invitations to those in the northern kingdom to come back for the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. So his sickness wasn't the result of sin. He's just told by God's prophet he's going to die. Now, I mentioned the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem. At this point, they're threatening a long siege and certain death and suffering for Hezekiah's people. The Assyrians are mocking Hezekiah. They're mocking Judah. And most of all, they're mocking Hezekiah's God. Jump with me back to chapter 36. You're going to have to stay with me this morning. We're going to cover some ground here in Scripture. But jump back to chapter 36, verse 4. And this is what we're told. It says, and the Rabbishakah. Now, the Rabbishakah was the third. That was a military term. It wasn't the man's name. He's the third in command in the Assyrian army, in their military. And the Rabbishakah said to them. So he's speaking now to leaders, some of Hezekiah's chief leaders. And this is what he says to them. This is the military, third in command in the, in the Assyrian military. And he has a message for Hezekiah. And he says, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. That's Sennacherib. So he's speaking on behalf of Sennacherib. And this is what he has to say. He wants them to take this message to Hezekiah. On what do you trust? Do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. 
So at this point, Judah has a bit of an alliance with Egypt. And Egypt was the main other power in opposition to Assyria. And Assyria is wanting to get to Egypt. They're wanting to defeat the Egyptians. But if you, I wish I had a map up on the screen so you could see this, but if you look at a map, you know that Assyria was northeast or northwest of, I'm sorry, northeast of Israel and Judah. Egypt is southwest of Israel. And the way you get to Egypt was through Israel. Now, the reason why the Assyrians want to destroy Judah, even though Judah's not a large country, when they go to Egypt, they don't want Judah cutting off their supply lines in the back, at their back. And so first they've got to take care of Judah. They've already taken care of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now they're wanting to take care of Judah. Egypt's the real objective. So this third in command in the Assyrian army says, don't trust in Egypt. They're just a broken reed. Verse 7, he says, But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? In other words, the Assyrians had done some surveillance. Now, they didn't understand the worship of Yahweh. At this point, he's saying, listen, he's taken away all your altars, all those high places. He's taken them away, Hezekiah has. So don't trust in your God. So they know, they know Hezekiah has made some reforms, but they're trying to use those reforms to undermine Hezekiah. Verse 8, he says, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part to set riders on them. Now what's he doing? He's trash talking now. You know what trash talk is, right? He's trash talking. He says, oh, he said, the king of Assyria, we'll give you 2,000 horses if you have enough men to even ride on them. We'll give you those 2,000 horses and we'll still whoop you. That's what he's saying here. If you have enough men to ride on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord. Now, when he says the Lord there, he says Yahweh. So now he's going to claim that Yahweh has sent him. He said, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So now he says, Yahweh has sent me as representative of Assyria to destroy you, Judah. So again, what's he doing? He's trash talking. That's what he's doing. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. Those are the three Hebrew leaders, Hezekiah's representatives. They said to Rabbishakah, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Now, why do you think they didn't want him to speak in Hebrew? Aramaic was the language of the Syrians. They don't want them to speak Hebrew because they don't want the people in the city to hear this trash talk. That's why they don't want them to speak Hebrew. They understood Aramaic, but the common people didn't. And they don't want the people to freak out. Well, 
Of course, you think they're gonna, the Assyrian leader is going to do that? No, verse 12 says, But the Rabbishakah said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Now, that's pretty strong. Now, the reason he says that is because what they're going to do is they're going to surround the city of Jerusalem and it's going to be siege warfare. So in siege warfare, the people in the city are stuck in the city. And when you're stuck in the city, typically you don't have water and you don't have food. And so in siege warfare, they just wait it out until the people are starving to death. Siege warfare was a horrible thing. And so he tells them, I'm not going to speak in Aramaic. I'm going to speak in Hebrew because I want the people in the city to know what they're going to be eating and drinking here soon. Again, he's trash talking. Then the Rabbishakah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Now this is, this is a power play here. He's referring to Sennacherib as the great king. Notice he never calls Hezekiah king this whole time. He's referring to the great king Sennacherib. Verse 14, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. In other words, don't let Hezekiah get you to believe that Yahweh has the power to, to stop the king of Assyria. No, the great king Sennacherib has more power than Yahweh. That's what he's saying. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine and each will have his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. In other words, if you'll just surrender and come out to me, you'll have plenty to eat and drink. But if you choose to stay in the city, you know what he just told them they'd be eating and drinking. Verse 18, he says, Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Seraphim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Samaria, again, that was the capital of the northern kingdom. They've already defeated the northern kingdom. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? Has the Lord, has Yahweh, that the Lord, that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? In other words, again, he's saying, even Yahweh can't stop us. So there you have it. Now the reason I read all that, took the time to read that, is I want you to just see the problems that Hezekiah is facing. Not only is he facing now his certain death, he's facing his nation, 
his city being surrounded and his people suffering and their sure death. His back's up against the wall. What's he going to do? Well, should he surrender to Sennacherib? Should he just accept the fact that he's going to die? But what's, what's he do? Well, Hezekiah prays. And that's a good place to start when your back's against the wall. Verse 2, Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, and he prayed to the Lord. And he said, and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So he's received the news he's going to die, and he goes to God in prayer. And it's interesting, he doesn't actually ask God to lengthen his life. That's not what he asked for. Instead, what he does is he reminds God of how he's lived his life. And what does he say to God? He says, God, I've walked before you in faithfulness. In other words, God, I've lived my life truthfully. I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart. Literally, that's with a perfect heart. Now, a lot of times, translators today stumble over that phrase. If you look in the King James, it has that as a perfect heart. But we, we struggle with that. I want to quote John Oswalt for a minute. He said, We've become suspicious of extravagant claims to righteousness, and that is as it should be. All of Jesus' teachings are critical of those who are proud of the righteousness they have achieved. But there is a sense in which we have swung too far in the opposite direction. As we listen to popular Christian music, we rarely hear someone singing of the joys of living in unbroken fellowship with God. Instead, we hear constant confessions of reoccurring sin and brokenness and of God's continuing forgiveness. It is though we have absolutized Romans chapter 7, forgetting that it is encased in Romans 6 and Romans 8. We've also forgotten that Jesus told his disciples that their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The problem with the Pharisees was not that they were too righteous. The problem with the Pharisees was they weren't righteous enough. The problem with the Pharisees was they had an external religion without the internal reality. They weren't serving God with a perfect heart. A heart that was united in its obedience and in its desire to please God. And so what Hezekiah is saying is he's not claiming infallibility. He's not claiming perfect performance. In verse 17, he talks about how God put his sins away. But what he's saying is on a conscious, intentional level, he's kept the promises of God. He's kept the commands of God. He's done everything he knew to do. So my question for you this morning is are you living in obedience to everything you know God wants you to do? Hezekiah has lived truthfully. He's not willfully deceived God or anyone else. He's been careful to keep his promises not only to God but to other people. And the reason he was able to do that is because his heart belonged to God. 
in the Bible, the heart is often, or at least we use it as our control panel, right? It's, when we refer to our heart, we're talking about how our thoughts and our affections and our will all come together. And Hezekiah is saying, as far as he knew, as far as this was up to him, his heart had been focused on one thing, and that was serving and pleasing and obeying God. So what I want to ask you this morning is, if such a life was possible for someone in the Old Testament, it certainly must be possible for us, who if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. As Christians, that's our great privilege as a new covenant believer. We have God's Spirit living within us. A privilege that was higher than what Hezekiah could even possess. Yes, in certain cases in the Old Testament, we're told that God's Spirit came to be within them, but that was not the norm as it is in the New Covenant. We possess God's Spirit living within us. And if Hezekiah could serve God with a perfect heart and walk before him in truthfulness, certainly we who possess the Spirit of God can do the same. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll always do everything right and won't have to ask forgiveness. In fact, in the Old Testament, Asa, you remember King Asa, we're told that his heart was fully committed to the Lord. But then we're told he didn't remove the high places. Evidently, the failure on Asa's part was out of ignorance and not necessarily defiance. His performance was flawed, but his heart was wholly God's. That's Asa. You go, you go to Solomon, you remember Solomon, the problem with his life was his heart became divided. His heart was divided. And he was no longer, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, King Solomon was no longer completely given over to God. His heart was divided. You and I, every one of us, should aspire to have the same testimony of Hezekiah when we're on our deathbed. Hezekiah is on his deathbed and he looks to God and he says, God, I've wholly, I've walked before you truthfully. My heart is perfect before you. When we get to our deathbed, will we be able to claim that? Hezekiah is saying to God that he had met God's requirements. Here's the bottom line. The reason why Hezekiah is saying this is in Psalm 34, Psalm 37, God mentions that his requirements for long life were to walk before him in integrity and truthfulness. And Hezekiah is saying to God, he's saying, God, is it fair for you to cut off my life as if it was the life of a wicked man when I have walked before you in integrity? It's fascinating to me, I was reading this week, and I, I was reading some, some various commentary, commentaries, and I was reading one commentary by a Calvinist, and it's interesting how they reacted to this passage. This is what they said. When Hezekiah prayed, this is what they said. They said, this is not the best ground on which an individual should stand before a holy God. 
For us as Christians, the best place to stand is the perfection of the Savior, Jesus Christ. At worst, Hezekiah's prayer may imply that he believes God has dealt with him unjustly, that he owes God, that God owes him a better outcome after all the many ways he served him. It's so easy for those in suffering to lose perspective. I would say that that commentator was way off. Because Hezekiah had walked before God in integrity. And he's simply crying out to God on the basis of God's promise. And as a result of Hezekiah's prayer, we then find out that God makes a promise to Hezekiah. Verse 4 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I've seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the 10 steps by which it had declined. So Hezekiah cries out to God in prayer. God responds by promising to add 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Now notice, God says to Hezekiah, I heard your prayer. I don't know about you, but that's reassuring to my heart. Because no matter how dark the night may be, no matter how difficult our circumstances, no matter how discouraging the situations we find ourselves in, no matter what we may be going through, God always hears our prayers. Always hears our prayers. Here's Hezekiah literally with his back to the wall, facing certain death, facing the collapse of his nation, and God says, I hear your prayers, Hezekiah. But not only does he hear our prayers, but he also says, through Isaiah the prophet, he says, Hezekiah, I not only heard your prayers, I saw your tears. In Psalm 56, David said, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You ever lay awake at night tossing and turning, praying? God keeps count of your tossing. God keeps count of your tears. God hears your prayers. I don't know about you, but that blesses my heart. You all okay this morning? That blesses my heart. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Hezekiah found out that yes, he cares. He cared for Hezekiah. He heard his prayers. He saw his tears. He extended Hezekiah's life. 
God doesn't always promise to heal all of our diseases. He doesn't promise to take away all of our pain in this life. But there's coming a day when all of those tears that have been bottled up, when all of those prayers that have been prayed, oh, it's going to be worth it all. Because yes, he cares. Now remember, even though Hezekiah's life was extended by 15 years, you do a little math and you find out Hezekiah died at 54. Still young. But all of this leads to some questions. God said, you're going to die. You're not going to live. And Hezekiah prays and God changes his mind. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say that God changes not? God doesn't change concerning the basic nature of things. Like, he doesn't condemn adultery one day and then you know, make a deal with you to allow you to commit adultery the next day. I hear people, I've had people tell me so many times, oh, God understands. God understands. No, God has said, thou shalt not. And when God says, thou shalt not, he changes not. Just because the man after his own heart, David, committed adultery doesn't mean that suddenly God decided, oh, it's acceptable, never mind. You know, like sometimes parents treat their kids. Like everybody else's kids, they'll come down hard on them, but then their baby. Oh, no, not my baby. You know what I'm talking about. That's not how God is. Concerning the basic nature of things, he changes not. But his unchanging commitment to do good to people means that God will gladly change what he has said about us if it can become a greater means to our blessing. Hezekiah called out to God, and God saw that his intervention would be a means of greater blessing for both Hezekiah and God's people. And so when God prayed, or no, I'm sorry, when Hezekiah prayed, God made Hezekiah promise that he would extend his life. But not only that, not only would he extend Hezekiah's life, but you'll notice in verse 6, he said to Hezekiah, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. So that's why I think Hezekiah's sickness took, pl took place before the deliverance that you actually read about the chapter before. Because God makes a promise to Hezekiah here, I'll deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. Aren't you thankful for a God who, when he makes a promise, he has the power to keep his promises? And God made a promise to Hezekiah, and he went so far as to confirm his promise by setting back the sundial ten steps. Now apparently, this sundial of Ahaz, as we're told, was a, a two-sided staircase 
with a post at the top that cast a shadow. And so as the sun would climb, would, would rise, the shadow would rise on the steps on one side, on the side away from the sun, and when the sun would go down, the shadow would go on the other side, down the steps. And God sets back time by ten steps to confirm his promise to Hezekiah, I'm going to extend your life by 15 years and I'm going to protect you from the Assyrians. Now you say, that's impossible. Of course it is, it's impossible. But what's impossible to man is possible with God. And we serve a miracle-working God who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than what we could ever ask or think. And Hezekiah found that out for himself. Well, then you come to verse 9. And what you see in verse 9 to 20 is a psalm of Hezekiah's. I'm not going to have time this morning to talk about it much, but I just want to read it quickly. Verse 9 says, A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. So this is after he's healed. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calm to myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day and night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward, O Lord. I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the way, is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me. And we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. That's Hezekiah's psalm. He writes this after he's healed. But the reality is, even after he was healed, he only had 15 more years. Life is transient. And life is in God's hands. Death is inevitable for all of us. And every one of us are going to wind up in a wooden box at the front of a building and people are going to say words and then we're going to wind up in the ground. It's inevitable. Startling statistics is 10 out of 10 people die. We're all headed for the grave. Hezekiah knew he was going to die. And all of us 
are facing certain death. Remember when Isaiah went to Hezekiah when he was sick? He said, put your house in order. You're going to die. Let me ask you this morning, is your house in order? Are you ready? Now's the time to prepare while we still have breath. None of us are guaranteed 15 more years. Quite frankly, none of us are guaranteed the next 15 minutes. Any of you see this week, I don't know, maybe you see it, saw it or not, but, but see a man named Ron Paul. Ron Paul ran for office, political office president several years ago. Ron Paul was speaking on an internet broadcast this week, and all of a sudden, he just, he had a stroke as he's speaking. It was startling to see. Now, he's, he's still alive, but that quick, something can happen. Now's the time to prepare because none of us are guaranteed the next 15 minutes. Now, I want to just quickly show you one more thing this morning. Can you bear with me for about, oh, I don't know, a couple more hours? I promise it won't be that long. But I want you to see one more thing about Hezekiah because it's important. If you study the whole book of Isaiah, you find out something. We'll talk about it in just a minute, but I want you to flip the chapter to the next chapter. And I want you to see what happens after this. Verse 1 of the next chapter. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon. So now this is the king of Babylon. And he sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. Now, isn't that amazing? Babylon is a long ways away from Judah, a long ways away from Jerusalem. But word, I mean, they didn't have the internet back then, all right? They couldn't pick up a telephone. But somehow word got to Babylon about Hezekiah's sickness and recovery. And so the king of Babylon sends envoys to Jerusalem to Hezekiah. Now remember, this is after the angel of the Lord comes after this. I skipped over this a moment ago, but, but after Hezekiah, in fact, as I mentioned earlier, some scholars believe that it was three days after his sickness, and it was three days after God promised that Hezekiah recovered and some scholars believe it was on the same day that God touched Hezekiah. He actually used medicine, actually. But on the same day he touched Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was healed, it was that same day that the angel of the Lord went at night and killed 185,000 Assyrians. And what did they have to do? They had to turn tail and go home, those who were left. Uh, can you imagine 185,000 people just mysteriously dead in the middle of the night? In fact, it's, it's fascinating because this is confirmed not only in the Bible, but actually in Sennacherib. Sennacherib has a prism in which he wrote all of his conquests. And it's fascinating because on Sennacherib's prism, which they've discovered, archaeologists discovered, he talks about how that he never conquered Jerusalem. Now, he claims he left them caged up like a bird, which is a little suspicious when you read the rest of the prism and you find out how he's recounting all of his conquests and nobody could stop him. 
But for some strange reason, Sennacherib was unable to defeat Jerusalem. That's not only confirmed on Sennacherib's prison, but also in Egyptian writings. That Sennacherib was unable to defeat Jerusalem. Why was it? Because the angel of the Lord came and killed 185,000 of his soldiers in one night. So Sennacherib is healed. Assyria is defeated. Now the king of Babylon, who was also in revolt against Assyria, sends envoys to Hezekiah. And verse 2 says, And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. He showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. And then as often happens in the Old Testament, the prophet of God comes knocking. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then, Hez then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, Hezekiah's pride. Just picture the scene here for a moment. These Babylonians have heard how Hezekiah was healed. They come to find out about it. Hezekiah had a golden opportunity what was that opportunity? He had the golden opportunity to tell them about Yahweh. And to say, it was Yahweh that healed me. And to share with them the good news of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But instead, what does Hezekiah do? He tries to impress the world. Can you imagine these Babylonians kind of laughing to themselves as Hezekiah is showing off all his treasures. By the way, at this point, Hezekiah has, they, they've paid tribute to Egypt at times. They've paid tribute to Assyria out of the storehouses. So there's probably not a whole lot of treasure left. And rather than telling them about the God of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, He's saying, oh, look at all these treasures I have. And I can just imagine those Babylonians snickering to themselves and thinking, if he only knew what we had back in Babylon. And as a result of his pride, at least in part, Israel is going to be taken away, Judah is going to be taken away and become captives of Babylon. 125 years in the future, by the way, this prophecy's made. And it came to pass. 
But look at verse 8. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Talk about a selfish response. He finds out their nation's going to be carried away to Babylon. His sons are going to be taken away. They're going to be made eunuchs in Babylon. And he says, oh, this is good, because at least in my day, we'll have peace and security. What's this show us? It shows us his selfishness. It shows us that Hezekiah was mortal. He was fallible. It also shows us that faith in God is not just a one-time experience, but faith in God is a way of life that we must run the race with endurance until we reach the finish line. Now again, I mentioned a moment ago about the book of Isaiah. And if we were studying the whole book of Isaiah, we would have seen that Israel has a problem. The problem is they have corrupt and sinful leaders. And that's one of the main reasons why Israel has repeatedly failed the Lord. At the beginning of the book of Isaiah, you remember Isaiah saw, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. In the year that he got his eyes off of the king of Israel, and he got his eyes on the Lord, something remarkable happened in Isaiah's life. You know the story. The angel takes the coal from the altar, touches his lips, and then he says, who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. And then you find out throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah that Isaiah begins to depict another type of leader, one that would rule with actual righteousness and justice. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, he says that this leader would be of the tribe of Jesse. In chapters 9 and verse 16, he says this leader would be of the house of David. And yet somehow, he would be what all of his predecessors had failed to be. He would do what they promised to do. His kingdom would have no end in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7 because he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so you can imagine as, as the people are reading Isaiah's prophecy, they're wondering, well, who is this leader of the house and lineage of David, who is he? Well, it's somebody righteous. And then they come to chapter 38 and they read of Hezekiah being a righteous man with a perfect heart toward God and thinking, well, perhaps it was Hezekiah. But then you come to chapter 39 and you find out, no, even Hezekiah was fallible. It wasn't Hezekiah. Well, who is it? And you go to the next chapter in Isaiah chapter 40. And you find out in Isaiah 40, all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them see Isaiah chapter 40 foreshadowing the arrival of John the Baptist and the Messiah. In the book of Matthew, we find out that Jesus was the one who was the one born of a virgin in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It was Jesus who was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53. In other words, 
We've got to keep our eyes off of people, and we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. And there's going to come times when we're going to feel tired of looking up, but that's exactly what we must continue to do. We can't stop short. We must keep looking up. Remember, I told you that Hezekiah destroyed the serpent's pole that Moses had created because the people of Judah began worshiping it. In John chapter 3, Jesus told a man who needed to put his faith in him. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him in other words, what Jesus says in John 3 is, look at me and live. I want you to stand with me. I know I preached long, and I'm sorry about that. I had a feeling that could be the case this morning. Had a lot of ground I needed to cover. But I want you to know this morning, as I said earlier, none of us are guaranteed the next 15 minutes Right now is the time that Christ offers us to look and live. We've got to look at Him, and we've got to keep looking. And so if you're here this morning, I want you to know He wants you to be saved. He died to make it possible. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the perfect King of Isaiah. He is the promised one. Look to him and live. If you're here and you have a need, the altar's always open for you. Look it to him and live before it's too late. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that your spirit will make your word clear and understandable and apply it to our lives this morning. You know those that are here today, those who need to look to you and live. Lord, there may be those that are here this morning with sin in their life. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just come to them right now and just remind them that they need to get their house in order before it's too late. God, help them to look to you by faith to put their trust in you and then keep their trust in you. Guard all of us against pride. Guard all of us, Lord, against trying to appease the world. But help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.